self technology, the internet, GPS in the palm of your hand, autonomous operation. Technology is a driver of our times. Since its founding in 1958 in the midst of the Cold War, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, has been a driver of technology. Welcome to Voices from DARPA, a window onto DARPA's core of program managers. Their job to redefine what is possible. My name is Ivan Amato, and I'm your DARPA host. And today I'm pleased to have with me in the studio U.S. Army Colonel Matt Hepburn, an active duty Army physician and since 2013 a program manager in DARPA's Biological Technologies Office. Colonel Hepburn holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Biomedical Engineering and a Doctor of Medicine degree, both from Duke University. Following all of that education, he completed an internal medicine residency and an infectious disease fellowship at Brook Army Medical Center at Fort Sam Houston in Texas. Prior to joining DARPA, Matt served as the Director of Medical Preparedness on the White House National Security Staff. And additional previous assignments included the Chief Medical Officer at a Level 2 Medical Facility in Iraq, a clinical research director at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, and an exchange officer to the United Kingdom, among other positions. Matt is one of DARPA's program managers who comes to work in his military attire, in his case, either his Army fatigues or a dress uniform. Either way, he always wears the smile of someone who finds himself in a place where he just might be able to realize a dream. And he has said publicly that he wants to stop all infectious diseases from killing people. May it be so. Colonel Matt Hepburn, though I will call you Matt from now on, it is my pleasure to have you in the studio today. It's fantastic to be here. And, uh, and thank you, Ivan, for inviting me to be on the podcast and to tell my story and tell you what I care so deeply about. Yes, yeah, so I've been greatly looking forward to the discussion. So why don't we get right into it? And uh, so you're a medical professional who embraces clinical and field practice as well as leading edge research. What are the origins of those interests for you? It started pretty young. I have this uh, childhood memory of being asked at my school, a Catholic school, and I was meeting with one of the priests, and they said, well, what do you really want to do? And I said, I wanted to be a pediatrician. And they said, why? And, and, and I said, well, because I just want to take care of people, and I want to take care of children. And I do think it stems from my mom was a nurse. And so I think less so from the influence of being around someone in the medical profession, but more so just being around someone that cares very deeply about other people. Again, very early on, and it, but it's been a, it's been sort of a consistent part of my life. And that when you it's say early this, on, do you mean elementary school? Yeah, age? this was in fourth grade. Wow. This whole like you know, I wanted to be a pediatrician, and so I was on, I was on this trajectory, and I didn't know, of course, what I was talking about. <laughs> you know, I mean, you even you make these decisions early in your life. But my parents and my family always had this incredibly strong ethic of service, and very deeply and fundamentally, because I reflect on this often. Actually, it's like. Who am I and, and what am I supposed to be? And I think what I do is I serve others, and that's, that's how I define myself. Maybe one of the greatest gifts from my parents was that. Um, my dad uh, was an active-duty Navy officer, did ROTC, and served as a nuclear engineer on a surface warfare ship. It was active-duty for five or six years, stayed in the Navy for another 20-plus, retired as a Navy captain in the reserves. You couple my mom's passion for helping other people in the medical field with my dad's passion of serving our country. 
it was almost like all I knew. And so that trajectory has sort of guided me through all of my decisions in my okay, life. Okay, well, let's, let's actually talk a little bit about that. You know, before you came to DARPA, you spent almost 15 years uh, in a variety of assignments that took you to, for example, Fort Detrick, the military's premier facility for infectious disease research. It took you to Korea, to the UK, uh, the Republic of Georgia, Azerbaijan, uh, Iraq, Thailand, other places, I'm sure. What did you learn from all of that global experience? I would start by saying what a privilege. What a privilege to have those types of life experiences, all in the context of, again, feeling that I'm serving my country and making a difference. Some of the work that I'm most proud of, frankly, is work I did in the Caucasus with Georgia and Azerbaijan. And the program uh, was under the auspices, it was called the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. But really, my role there was um, to engage their public health communities and their medical research communities to establish that capability of finding infectious diseases, diagnosing them, and ultimately treating them. And it was a capability that was, those public health systems were all part of the Soviet Union, but when the Soviet Union fell, these countries were kind of left to their own to recreate a public health infrastructure. And so the privilege was to work with those experts in the host country to say, how do we build that back up again? so that you can tell us that there's an outbreak going on, and then we can collectively work together to respond to that outbreak. Right, and so did you bring in models like the, the Centers of Disease Control here? We, we did, yes, we did. did. We worked closely with the embassies, we worked closely with the State Department, we worked closely with the CDC. At the end of the day, it was myself and some of my DOD colleagues on the ground, you know, rolling our sleeves up, helping these countries develop those systems, developing laboratory capabilities, developing the ability to do clinical research to ethical standards that would be accepted all over the world, and to figure out how to do this. You know, again, I look back, what a privilege to be on the ground, um, and, and at this point, fairly junior in my career, and to help an entire nation improve their public health. Yeah, no, that does sound like a great privilege. What is the sequence of events, Matt, that resulted in your current position here at DARPA as a program manager? Throughout my medical career, I had heard about DARPA, and I had seen amazing technology that had come from DARPA that were aimed at addressing infectious diseases threats. So I had always admired from afar. Before I joined DARPA, I was over at the White House National Security Council staff. And in that role, my job was to identify what capabilities we do not have to respond to pandemics, and then how we can organize ourselves as a government, not just DOD, but as an entire government towards addressing those gaps. So we're ready for the next one. And while I was there, I got tapped on the shoulder. And the concise phrase was, you're doing all of this policy, what we should do as a government, how would you then like to implement and actually uh, make investments that are going to address those gaps. So, Matt, were you literally tapped on the shoulder for uh, this? I mean, and so, who, who it, was it that, that posed this to you? It, it was Dr. Jeff Ling, who was the deputy director of DSO at the time. And he, uh, we, I met him for coffee one morning, and he didn't literally actually put his hand on my shoulder, but <laughs> figuratively, figuratively, imagine a hand on my shoulder saying, Matt, how would you like a try at DARPA to actually invest to make a difference for all those things that you've been talking about in terms of big policy words for the last few years? 
Well, and of course, he provided a model of audacity because he really took on tremendous Absolutely. programs and prosthetics and other, other programs to really help uh, the warfighter. Why don't we segue then into your life as a program manager here in this tremendous portfolio that, that you've developed, which is, I think, a portfolio that also reflects some uh, kind of audacious point of view, as is, of course, reflected by that statement earlier that you want to take the, the lethal power out of infectious disease. So uh, the names are fantastic. Some of them like Prometheus and Thor, dialysis-like therapeutics in vivo nanoplatforms, and we'll probably talk more about one of them in particular, the pandemic prevention platform. What I'm hoping to do now is, is if you could briefly take us for a tour of your programs. We can't go in depth about any of them uh, at this point, but take me on a little bit of a tour on, on what's, what you're hoping to achieve with, with these programs, and then we'll focus in a little bit more on the uh, pandemic prevention platform. Yeah, so the tour starts by saying, wh what problems are we trying to solve? And again, at the White House National Security Council staff, I got a chance to say, look, for these major outbreaks, pandemics or near pandemics, how have we done as a government? Think about the uh, 2009 H1N1 pandemic. Think about the West Africa e Ebola crisis. In H1N1, that is influenza. H1N1 influenza, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, influenza. Think about the West Africa Ebola crisis. Think about how we've recently responded to Zika. There are common themes throughout. And some of those common themes are we need to be much better at diagnosing if someone has an infection. And we need to go a step beyond that and imagine a world that if we could figure out if someone is going to be sick or is going to be contagious, we can intervene and stop the outbreak right in its tracks. And that's Prometheus. And that's the Prometheus program. But we also need to make vaccines and treatments much faster than we currently can. And that's one of the examples is the pandemic prevention platform. We need alternate ways of how we treat infections and using portable dialysis to filter the blood and remove any type of pathogen is a good example. But the So just in that case, is, does that mean if I might, I might have been exposed to some kind of pathogenic agent, it's in my blood and certainly level. So would this kind of technology remove that before it could take hold and actually get me sick? Was that, is that the idea of that? Yes. And it, the idea would be, again, especially for pathogens where we don't have a vaccine, where we don't have a treatment, especially think about now with where we're seeing so much um, antimicrobial resistant bacteria. Imagine if uh, where we can't use antibiotics. So if we can filter your blood and remove that pathogen, what it does is ultimately gives a leg up for your own immune response to ultimately make you well again. We like that technology, especially in those first days when we need to buy some time to develop a vaccine and we need to develop new treatments. And so my point across the portfolio is that um, we have lots of investments in medical diagnostics. We're investing in modeling to forecast where infectious diseases are going to go. We have investments in accelerating new treatments, but they're all connected together. They are all linked. And let me give you an example. With our Prometheus program, predicting if someone is going to become contagious. Well, awesome, right, if we can do that. But once we predict and identify that person, we still have to treat them. And so we're going to need treatments as fast as possible with our pandemic prevention platform. And the beauty is, is that those treatments are probably going to be most effective when they're given as early as possible. So I think of our whole portfolio as interconnected, that we develop a lot of different specific projects to hit capabilities, um, but that they're ultimately going to intertwine 
so that we stop the outbreak in its tracks. Well, when I think of programs here at DARPA, they all have a, a kind of life cycle to them, right? I mean, they, they sort mm-hmm. of start as a glimmer in the eye of someone like you, Matt, a program manager. There's a period of vetting and working with others here to really articulate uh, and formulate the program as best it can be so that it can be most effective. And then kind of smoke signals go out to the world and seeking people who maybe think that they can pull off some of these audacious tasks that we, you put out. Of course, then the research is done and hopefully in the end, you succeed, or if not fully succeed, you learn from all of the research that, that's gone on. So what is the status in that life cycle of the pandemic prevention platform? The pandemic prevention platform just launched. And so, and by launch, for those res- who might not know what that means in the DARPA context. So that, that means that completing the contracting process so that our performers that were selected in a very rigorous process can now accomplish the goals of the program. So they're just starting in there for six months. As part of the life cycle, these are early days. Early days because the ultimate goal of that program is so difficult. Um, we have a lot, you know, in some ways I feel like, wow, we have, we have a long way to go. One of the, the key points, though, of the pandemic prevention platform is that the goal is incredibly ambitious. But there is foundational scientific evidence that this can be done. And that foundational scientific evidence is derived from a previous DARPA program. And that previous DARPA in other words, proved the concept. That's ADEPT. That's the ADEPT program. Because when, when I looked over the program, it's fascinating to me because it, it looks like we're, we're trying to rev up the whole brilliant molecular world of antibodies. Um, and, right. and so I want you to sort of go through this the sequence of events beginning with this earlier program at DEPT. Yeah. But, but walk us through some of the steps because when I look, antibodies too are among my favorite proteins. When I look at they're just brilliant things. they just so selective and they find the thing that we don't want in our bodies. And they glom. Anyway, you tell us the pieces of the program. You know, you know Ivan, I couldn't agree more. I think all of us that are fascinated by DARPA, right? That's probably a common theme is we are just amazed by the natural world and what the natural world has developed. Antibodies are a great example. I mean, there are millions and millions of these different versions of antibodies circulating through your body at all times. And the mechanisms are so refined and intricate to select, okay, which are the antibodies that are most protective when you're exposed to an infection? And your body goes through the process of them making a lot of those in a short period of time. I think it's mind-boggling how advanced that system is. We've learned so much about antibodies in the last 50 years. You're absolutely right. We want to leverage all of that information that we know how they work now, and we know how they, we know about their structure. We know how to make them in big vats, and why can't we use that? And you're seeing incredible progress in medicine where we are using that, where you're seeing antibodies approved as products now for cancer treatment, for treating autoimmune diseases. Or the category of biologicals. In the the category of biologicals, a massive explosion in that space. And we want to use all of that knowledge and that technology to solve infectious diseases problems. What we do at DARPA, though, is the fun part is we couple different fields together. And so, as you have correctly pointed out, this extraordinarily powerful tool of antibody engineering. But can we couple that with the, the revolution that we've seen in, in genetics? And that's, that's DARPA, right? It's taking two different areas, seeing if we can mix them together. Again, an antibody specialist might not think about the opportunities with genetics. The genetic specialist might not think, well, wonder if I can 
use my use genetic engineering to make an antibody. You bring the two fields together in a you know by our our magic of bringing the the disciplines together, we achieve that effect. And so the proof of concept, which I find exhilarating, since chills up and down my spine, is that we can give you a piece of DNA or a piece of RNA, and we can put that into your muscle cells, and that your muscle cells say, okay, got it, I am going to make this antibody that is so protective that someone's not going to get sick. And that's encoded by these nucleic acids, the RNA. The RNA tells that muscle cell. So the muscle cell's doing what a muscle cell does, but once that RNA gets inside that muscle cell, the muscle cell says, right, I'm going to make a protective antibody that's going to protect you from Ebola and to do that in a fairly short period of time. And that idea would sound crazy 10 years ago. Too many obstacles can't be done. The foundational investment um, from DARPA proved that concept in many different animal models for many different infections. But because we're DARPA, we said, well, great, we proved the concept. That wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough for me, and it wasn't good enough for the DARPA leadership. DARPA leadership said, okay, that's great, but we need to birth the baby. If we're going to take pandemics off the table, and that's, that's why I'm here, we need to be able to put this together as a platform that can go start to finish from once a pathogen is identified to making thousands of doses of this miraculous uh, antibody-based, antibody-based treatment mm-hmm. in an incredibly short period of time. Right. And let's let's talk about the time scale for a minute, because that's part of the, the big deal here, right? What I've seen is within 60 days of identifying the, the pathogenic agent mm-hmm. to actually have these doses right in hand and in a distributable form. Is that correct? That's correct. Ready and that for... compares to what to, to what's the state of the art today? The state of the art today depends on infections. But let's use some, some recent examples. We currently have some Zika vaccines in clinical trials, but we've been working now for a few years, and we don't have a licensed Zika vaccine. Um, you think about our recent, when we talk about gaps, you think about all of these recent outbreaks. And one of the fundamental lessons is that we haven't had vaccines and treatments that are ready in time. And we came up, the 60-day the goal has been controversial. Um, when we talk about audacity, um, you know, I, I have professional colleagues who laugh at me. <laughs> I've been on I've been on panels where uh, where I, I you know discuss the program, and the other panelists joined with the audience at laughing at me. So I knew we were in the right space. The counter argument that I continually make to the critics is, sixty days is dictated by what we need to respond to pandemics. So if you don't agree that our approach is the right way, then come up with an alternative because we can't negotiate with Mother Nature and say, well, we'd like another six months if you don't mind, Um, especially when you think about the catastrophic consequences accordingly. So, you know, we have to be, we have to do this within 60 days. And I think, again, I'm profoundly excited because I think we found a way to do it. So I want to try to make this concrete for our listeners, uh, which you've, you've actually done fairly well just now, but I thought of another way we might do this. Um, and that's by combining, you know, kind of almost the, the gaming out to the future where let's say you are successful and may you be successful mm-hmm. with this P3 program, the, the uh, pange- pandemic prevention platform program. Um, let's say that you had that P3 ability 
back in the 1918 Spanish flu, which I, I've seen different numbers. I've heard 50 million pe people died during that uh, um, pandemic. If this technology existed back in, in the early part of the uh, last century, how would that have, have unfolded, do you think? Well, my hope is that 50 million people don't die. That we, and again, part of this is you detect that we have a new virus or a new version of influenza. And we detect very early on in the process when it's first starting out in a given country um, that, it's, that, that it's happening. Uh, we flip the switch and we say, for that new virus, um, we need 20,000 doses that have to be ready within 60 days. And then we go to when that outbreak is first starting, we identify who's sick, uh, we treat those people um, that are most likely to be contagious, and we stop the outbreak in its tracks. If we had it, we could have stopped the Spanish flu. I think even more importantly, right now, today, you and I both know people who are getting very sick with influenza, we're seeing a severe season. And we're seeing, uh, unfortunately, children die. We're seeing, unfortunately, uh, otherwise completely healthy people having, you know, being hospitalized. And influenza does that to us every year. We imagine a world where this platform could be used to take seasonal influenza off the table as well. Right. And an amazing thought because, um, I mean, this gets back to, you, to the, the, the several times you said what a privilege it is to do what you're doing because right. if you succeed, you will know. I, I know you won't take this. It, it, it's not pumping you up personally. It's, it's more for what it's doing for, uh, you know, kind of humanity. But you will know you've had a part in pro potentially saving millions of people's lives by cutting these uh, pandemic uh, experiences off uh, before they really get going and spread. So uh, a, a really quite an amazing yeah. Yeah. And I would make two points. The first is that um, DARPA, my, my, poor, my team does not do this alone. DARPA does not do this alone. Um, we, we work incredibly closely um, with our colleagues in Health and Human Services, with other experts in the Department of Defense and the U.S. government, um, as well as philanthropy, as well as the private sector, and as well as the global community. It, it's ultimately a, a global teamwork. Um, that's going to take these infectious diseases off the table. But make no mistake, we can say it sounds hard and it's ambitious and it's crazy, but I challenge you to say, why not? You know, why, why aren't we as a society putting incredible, even more effort into taking these infectious diseases off the table if we have the, if we have the scientific know-how to do so? This is what I think right. we should be focusing it's on. It's a moonshot, but why not go for a moonshot? And, and why not go for a moonshot for... Uh, against something that could kill another 50 million people. Why not take a moonshot against uh, infectious diseases like malaria and tuberculosis? I mean, we've seen, you know, there's, there's effort in there. There's global effort that's absolutely tremendous. But why not more? So, Matt, just a little while ago, you and I were kind of <clears throat> gushing about the molecular beauty and the biological beauty of antibodies and the specificities those have to go out and find whatever the health-threatening agent might be and kind of and the, the role that plays in our own bodies fight against uh, health-compromising um, exposures. So I'm, I guess I kind of want to ask you, do, do you have a favorite infectious disease in the sense that you admire what the bacterium or what the virus does and has learned how to do over the course of evolution? So I'll answer in a slightly different way. Um, I think it's a, uh, 
when 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 we say we want to take infectious diseases off the table, um, in some ways it's a, it's ridiculous because we're always going to have we're always going to have viruses and bacteria that are part of the natural world, and uh, we um, and we've always seen them as the enemy or as pathogens is the word that we use. Um, one of the interesting ways to think about the problem, though, is that. Um, Part of it is that they are a pathogen, but part of it is how we respond. And um, modulating how our own body responds to pathogens is a, is a major theme of what we're trying to do, with antibodies being one of many examples. And so, you know, one of the traditional attitudes of antibiotics is, you know, antibiotics have been wonderful and certainly profoundly impactful in terms of our society as, as, we've, as we've come along. But we've also discovered the unintended consequences of giving a broad-spectrum antibiotic, incurring my, antimicrobial resistance, and things like that as well. So uh, the, the world that I imagine is that there is, I guess, like you said before, an appreciation of pathogens, an appreciation of viruses and bacteria, understanding what they do and what they don't do. And it's not always wiping them out, but more about rendering them harmless or figuring out ways to kind of coexist with them is where I would like our thinking to go in the 21st century. Right. And it makes a lot of sense. I've heard statistics about the number of mammalian cells in me and you and the number of bacterial cells. And there's we're almost, from just a numbers perspective, way more bacterial they, than we are mammalian. We are. Uh, but they're, most of the time, this is, this is a symbiosis. This is, this is a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, and so uh, it, it really, we shouldn't always think about these, these microbes as uh, things to, to, to uh, consider them enemies. We shouldn't consider them that. That's right. That's right. And the other part is that we learn from them. You know, it's, it's their evolution that also kind of inspires us. And so it's uh, that in some ways they're our adversary, but in some ways they're sort of that, uh, you, you know, in the superhero novels and things like that, this idea of the, the, uh, the balance between the hero and the villain and sort of that strange relationship that often develops between the two and, and if you will, mutual appreciation is that I think that's us and pathogens. So Matt, we're we're coming toward the, the end of our time here, but um, I, I I'm just wondering if there is uh, something that didn't come up during our discussion that uh, you think would be of interest to our listeners, given you know your goal here of uh, perhaps uh, uh, ridding us of uh, some of some of the concerns we have about uh, the, the pathogens in our environment. Yeah, one of our mantras at DARPA is this idea of. Inspiring, inspiring creativity and new solutions to problems. And oftentimes we say by sort of recruiting in people who have not traditionally thought about our problems um, uh, to help us with those solutions. And so, uh, you know, I would love for the listeners of this podcast um, to be more inspired uh, to address uh, the problems in infectious diseases. And what I mean by that is, uh, I always say people like me uh, have to, you know, we, we've invested our entire careers and our life work into this, and we have deep knowledge of the subject. But I love the thought of people that have expertise in computer science, in mathematics, in what we would say, well, maybe those fields aren't necessarily obviously related. That's who, I think that's how we're going to solve the infectious diseases problems of the 21st century. And so when I speak on this, it's almost part, it's one part recruiting. And it's especially recruiting those that may not have all of the biases of the traditional experts in infectious disease to come up with a creative solution to solve it. 
So that makes me think of a term that we hear a, a lot here at DARPA, you know, the, the innovation ecosystem, because you just mentioned a whole bunch of disciplines that, you know, maybe on first, when you first think about infectious disease, you might not think some of those come together. So is, is there something about you and being here at DARPA that is conducive to sort of shaking up that innovation ecosystem in ways that could maybe move toward the goals that you have? Well, DARPA enables me to do that. Because, again, they are our program announcements. And we say, okay, we set the requirements. Solve this problem. Uh, make us a treatment in 60 days. We know that they can't do that alone, and it takes a multidisciplinary team. So if, if you want funding from DARPA, you're going to have to work with people. You're going to have to recruit it. We design it so that you will have to recruit in people that may not be the traditional subject matter experts. But furthermore, um, every time I get a chance to speak, and to talk about this problem, um, like on this podcast, you know, again, I see it as a recruiting, uh, as a recruiting tool um, to inspire those um, to help us address these infectious diseases threats. Well, what I'm realizing now is I do not want to prevent you for another minute from going out there and realizing your goal of, of, of taking the lethality out of uh, pathogenic disease. And we are out of time also. So I just want to thank you. This has been immensely fascinating for me. And I, I just want to thank you uh, for sharing the stories about your, your life as a as a, a medical professional and, uh, and how you're expressing your interests uh, and goals here at DARPA. Well, thank you very much for for allowing me to be a part of it. And thanks, listeners, for sharing this time with us. I hope you join us again for the next Voices from DARPA. For more information about Colonel Matt Hepburn, the programs he runs, and the other breakthrough technologies DARPA is working on, visit DARPA.mil. And for links that enable you to download this podcast, go to the Voices from DARPA page on DARPA's website. DARPA's website.